One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of the non-fiction books How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood and the upcoming novel Insatiable. There's an exclusive limited signed edition available from Waterstones and podcast listeners have first dibs. Pre-ordering books is a gift to your future self, like yoga. Unlike yoga, pre-ordering books will not lead to you popping your arm out of its socket during Warrior 2 and producer Dale will not have to come and peel you off the mat while you pretend you're not crying. Anyway, I've spent my summer with this week's guest. Britt Bennett's second novel, The Vanishing Half, is one of the best books I've read this year. Stella and Desiree are identical twins whose circumstances alter irrevocably when Stella disappears and starts living as a white woman. It's a dazzling novel about race, identity and family. And similar themes come up in Brit's brilliant debut, The Mothers, recently published in the UK for the first time. Obviously, as soon as I was able to get hold of a copy, having stopped reading The Vanishing Half, I started reading The Mothers. So Brit has been very much in my head and in my heart over the last few months. When I spoke to Brit, we talked about Toni Morrison, the books that Brit was forbidden from taking out from the library, and the strange nature of celebrity memoirs, as well as Brit's newest novel. What was your lockdown reading like? Did you Was it different? Did you read more or less? Did you find comfort in books, or did you find it harder than usual to concentrate? Um, definitely hard at first to concentrate. Uh, eventually, I kind of got into a swing of things around May or so, and I went into a pretty uh, sort of intense reading period. I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't writing anything then. The class I was teaching was over, so I really had nothing to do. Um, so, um, you know, I'm usually a pretty slow reader, but I was just kind of like, you know, going through a few books a week, which is very unusual for me. Um, so it's been a mixed bag. I think it's definitely harder in a lot of ways to concentrate, um, and certainly it was that way in the beginning of the quarantine. But also I think that it has been, I, I certainly have, done more reading since the lockdown started than I had done outside of it. And what kind of books are you reaching for? What have you really enjoyed or what will stay with you? Different things. Like I reread a few Morrison novels. Other just new books that have been out that friends have recommended to me. Um, I just finished this book, Beast Your Eyes, which came out I think last year and I completely loved. Um, I just finished that book this weekend. I don't know Um, that book. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, that book was one that my friend who's a bookseller recommended to me. And it's about this artist who does this really, this artist in the er, 60s who makes this really controversial, uh, takes this really controversial photograph of her and her daughter and dies tragically young at like 40. And the whole book is is written as an, uh, an art catalog. And it's her daughter like compiling and describing these pictures that you never get to see. Um, so it's like her mother dies and leaves behind this box of all her photos. And the daughter's like going through all the photos in chronological order, describing the pictures and kind of annotating them with what was happening in their lives at that time. So it's just really, it was really fascinating because to think, I'm always really interested in how you describe writing about art that the reader does not actually get to experience because she's describing photographs and there are no photos in this book. <laughs> so that was something that my friend, like my friend piqued my interest when she mentioned that. Um, but be, outside of that, it's, it's a really uh, just heartbreaking and, and emotional meditation on a very complicated mother-daughter relationship and also just women and art and motherhood. Um, and it, it tackles that in a way that's so much more nuanced and complicated than the very, you know, really stupid question of can mothers make art like that's such a stupid and boring debate so um so the book actually 
sort of dives into that thematically in a really more interesting way. So that was really appealing to me, but also just the form of it, I thought was, I had never read anything like that. So, um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that. I just finished that yesterday. That sounds incredible. I'd love to read that. Who's the author? Um, Myla Goldberg. Motherhood and, and motherlessness, um, you know, comes up a lot. Do you find that you notice that more in other books as a as a theme? Because it's a really universal theme, isn't it? I feel like pretty much every book is about has motherhood in it on some level. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's something that I notice. Um, but I think you know, I'm mostly drawn to books by and about girls and women. So I think that that's definitely a theme that comes up a lot. So yeah, I don't know if it's something that I intentionally seek out. Really, for this book, it was the form of it that was the thing that I. Like the very sort of, I don't know, kind of boring writer side of me was like, how is it structured? Like that was what drew me in. I didn't know anything else about the book. I just knew that this was the structure because my friend had told me. Um, so I was drawn to that more than any of the thematics because I didn't know all the thematics yet. But to me, it, it both of those things work together in such a really fascinating way. Um, and I don't know, I just love books where there's like a sense of, I mean, I don't know that's kind of dark, but where there's a sense of inevitable tragedy <laughs> and that shades everything. Like you know that this woman's going to die really young. So the whole time you're reading the book, there's just this feeling of, of wonder as you're, you're getting to know this character and this artist, but also this feeling of like impending doom as you're reading it and you're getting closer and closer in time to when she dies. So I thought it was such a great book. Um, I, I am really glad that my friend recommended I really get that. I love books where the anxiety about what may or may not happen and that sort of conflicting hope is better when that's removed and you can almost just think about the, the characters and that part and the sort of the nuances of the story because you're not just constantly waiting for the watch. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is not the most boring question, but I think it's one of the most boring questions. <laughs> like, I'm not against plot, but I just think what happens is is like, 15% of why you're reading or why you're watching something. And, and to be fair, it depends on the type of book. There's some books where you're deeply invested in like what happens because like that, the payoff of that is, is, is the payoff of reading the book. You know, like it's like getting to an end of a mystery and being like, who done it? That's what you're reading for. Um, so it depends, I think, on all of that. But in this type of book, which is really just a book about this mother-daughter relationship that was very complicated, that that question is not interesting and I love books that just like get it out of the way <laughs> and now go on to what the author is clearly more interested in and what she thinks is going to be more interesting for the reader which is who was this person. Um, I completely agree and I'm trying to think of those books that do something really unusual <clears throat> with the structure and do it successfully you know where someone's sort of written in a way that also makes it serve the story so you're not constantly thinking oh it's it's weird they've done that and I know like, I loved Girl, Woman, Other for that. And that sort of, you know, that it, it feels like poetry. Are there any other books that have that? A, it's a very unusual way of storytelling that you really responded to. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think Actress by Anne Enright kind of does a similar thing. Um, it's also about a mother-daughter. It's about uh, this woman who's an Irish theatre legend and her daughter who's kind of writing the story of her life as she's died. So it's similar thematically. Um, and it's written a, a more, I think, more straightforwardly. There's not that form of it being like an art catalog or anything like that. Um, it's written just in a straightforward kind of one first person. Um, but again, it's like a book that, like when I started reading it, I was like, is this a real person? Like I had to stop and look it up. Like is this some person I've never heard of? Because it's written uh, in the way, like the kind of preamble to the book. You all, Again, you get the details of this woman's mother was this huge theater legend who inexplicably shot this man like who was a I think a director so she like inexplicably shot this director for reasons that nobody understood and kind of descended into madness and her daughter uh, is writing the story of her life after she's died but you're, you're giving those facts so like when you first see the, the director who's like at a party and you're just like okay so what like what happened why did she shoot him and like that question is like part of what you were kind of reading towards but the payoff of that is not the book. Like, that's not the payoff of the book. It's like, oh, and this is why she shot him. But it is like a central question that pulls you through of like, who is this person? How did she go from being this like theater darling to this woman who's being tried for shooting this man like in the toe or somewhere where she shot him? <laughs> I had a writing professor who was just like, 
you know, like mystery is created by what you reveal, not by what you withhold. And that's something that I've, I think about that all the time. And it's something that I, I really have integrated into my writing practice of just like, the story becomes more interesting when you tell people things. <laughs> and when you tell them often up front, then that story is not, oh, well, how did she die? It's not that question. It's, you know, it's, it's everything else along the way that makes that person interesting. Which book do you think has taught you the most about storytelling? I'm really nervous, by the way. I feel like anything I say about, you know, books and reading and writing and things I love, like I will, I will not use the correct technical terms. I'm sort of in awe of your, your MFA and you'll say, please do correct <laughs> me on any of that. Um, I mean, I think a lot of them. I think one I've been thinking about a, a lot because I reread it this summer was Song of Solomon. Uh, by Toni Morrison. I think that that was a book that really did influence me in a, in a lot of ways, I think, uh, I think more than probably anything else that she wrote as far as how it's put together as a novel. Um, I just think that book, I mean, has the most perfect beginning and the most perfect ending. And that's just so unbelievably difficult to accomplish when I think about it. Just like how? <laughs> I think that endings in particular I think are impossible so I think it's it's so perfect the way that she weaves in information the way that you are seeing these characters the way so much information is like relayed second third hand so you're constantly trying to determine what's true and and you're constantly getting stories from other people and you don't know what's true and what actually happened and who's lying and so all of that all the characters are psychologically so interesting um I just think the way that, that book moves through space and time is is really amazing. So I think like as far as technically speaking, I think that was a novel, is a novel that I am just constantly, I think it's, I think it's a perfect novel. Uh, yeah, I do. And I don't think that there, I don't think that any novels are really perfect. <laughs> I'm interested in the first time you read that book, because you said that you reread it this summer. And yeah. I always think it's really interesting when we return to books and what makes us return to them and what we notice and what we learn second or third time around. So how do you remember when you first read it and how that felt? Yeah, I was um, studying abroad um, at Oxford. So it was the first time I'd ever left the U.S. And I was taking a tutorial on post-colonial literature and my tutor assigned it. Um, I had never read that book. And I think reading it for the first time not in America was uh, just the most mind-blowing reading experience because the book is so deeply about what it means to be a Black American. Um, and reading it outside of my kind of context in, in which I was thinking about what it meant to be an American in a way that I'd never thought about before. <laughs> um, and, you know, experiencing myself as an American really for the first time, I think, in my life, because I was not in America. Um, I think that that was something that was really just a mind-blowing uh, experience. And I think the strange thing about that book is that when I revisit it, I still feel that same way about it. I like, I, there were certain images that I remembered so vividly from the first time I read it and then rereading again, I still had the same emotional response to those images. Um, so I think that that's something that, uh, that I think is often rare and, um, you know, I think I had to do, uh, I had to read it out loud for something. So there was like a chapter that I read twice in succession, um, as I was rereading this time. And even just that, I think was something that I never do. I never am like reading a book and read the chapter once and then read it again immediately, <laughs> but having to do it for this thing because I was reading it aloud um was also just another intense way of, of revisiting the book because it's the chapter uh it's the chapter where milkman is trying to convince guitar to help him steal pilot's gold and when i was rereading it i was like kind of tracking this like psychology of the character as it evolves in this really uh, just really realistic way, I thought. Because at first it's like, okay, Milkman wants Guitar to do something. So he's going in to convince him. 
And then Guitar immediately says yes. And then Milkman's like, wait a minute, maybe this is not a good idea. <laughs> and just like going back and forth, I'm like, that's it. That's totally how people make decisions. You know, this idea of like, I thought I wanted this thing. And then now that you say it's a good idea, maybe I don't want this thing. <laughs> um, but that, that the trajectory of that became so much more apparent to me when I was just reading it back to back. So I think, yeah, I think rereading is, I'm not a huge rereader unless it's something I really love because there's just so many books that I want to read once. But rereading that book, uh, I think, is, is totally an education. And, and aside from that, just is such an uh, amazing and perfect book. Can you remember growing up, like the, the first books that you were sort of choosing to read and reading independently? I don't know the first books, but, um, you know, I was really into every time we had silent reading in school, I would like do my work really fast so that I could have more time to silently read what I wanted to read. I remember reading, I think the first novel that I really remember reading was The Outsiders, uh, which was a book that a teacher had given to me. And I think I was in about the third grade uh, when I remember her giving me this book because she saw that I was reading you know, a little bit above my grade level and she thought I could handle it. Um, and I remember that being a book that I just loved and read over and over and over, over again um so that was definitely a, a book that was really hugely important to me uh, when, when I was uh, in elementary school for sure I think it's huge isn't it when first realized like it can be a preference and it's so intimate and so individual and it's not like everyone in the class is reading the same book but someone sees you and like, this is just for you yeah definitely I used to love that uh I remember like yeah I just remember I would I would just kind of blow through what the actual assignment was because what I wanted to get to was the silent reading. And I never understood those kids who never had a book, like they didn't want to do the silent reading and they always had to like borrow a book from the teacher. And my mom is the big reader in my house. So she, my dad is not as into reading, um, but my mom is the reader and she was the one who really put me onto books. Uh, so I, I grew up in a culture of reading, which everybody doesn't, you know, yeah. and that in itself is sort of this privilege and this gift to have, you know, the family bookshelf with a bunch of books that you can just steal and read. <laughs> Definitely. Um, was it all very sort of, you know, the bookshelf for the family and that your mother was, you know, there saying, come read, help yourself? Or were there any books that you wanted to sneak and read when you were younger? Like, I know that there were definitely books that I would get down from the bookshelf that I know I shouldn't be reading and that made them all the more appealing. You know, honestly, not from the family bookshelf. My, my parents actually did not care at all what I read. Like, they cared about the music I listened to. They cared about the movies we watched. They did not censor at all what I read. Um, and really, for me, like, the more forbidden books were the ones that I got from the library uh, because my sister worked at the library and she would, like, get what I wanted. But she also screened them first. So there were some books she was just like, no, I won't. <laughs> she, like, she, she censored my books more than my parents did. <laughs> my parents did not know or care what I was reading. So can you remember what you asked her to get for you that she wouldn't bring home? I don't remember. I just remember there being like, they weren't even really pulpy romances, but they were like romance books that I would be reading that were like contemporary romance. And she'd be like, no, there's too much sex in this. You can't read this one. Um, so there were some books like that, I remember. But... You know, we had books on my, my books on my parents' shelf that they had a lot of books that were thematically very heavy. Like I remember reading *The Bluest Eye*. I remember reading *Native Son*. In a lot of ways, those books you would think would be—I don't know—like yeah, I think are are more intense certainly than like a romance book about whatever. Uh, but those books also were considered like classic literature, so my parents didn't care if I was reading them. You know, <laughs> but. But, um, but I loved, I think, having a sister who worked at the library. And also, like, often I would just read the books that she was finished reading. Um, so I got a lot of my pop culture from just being the youngest child and, and just kind of picking the crumbs off of what everybody was finished with. <laughs> so there was a lot of that. But, um, but yeah, I don't remember really sneaking anything off the shelf. I just remember uh, mostly, if I, if I snuck anything, it was from the library. Uh, but my parents were actually... I, I'm very grateful that they did not care what I was reading. They were just happy to see us with books. Um, I'm really interested in something you said about being kind of a slow reader when it's not a pandemic. Because obviously, you know, you grew up reading was like the thing. And, you know, with the silent reading and that being preferable to anything else you could do at school. What changed, do you think? Was it working in and publishing and 
teaching and writing and reading is the thing that it feels like a luxury that's difficult to make time for? Yeah, I think just life. I think probably some is attention span, which is, I think a lot of us have just like having phones that are constantly demanding your attention, emails that are constantly coming in. Like it's hard to, like I've had to, during the pandemic, I've had to just set aside scheduled time because if I don't schedule in the time, I'm just not going to get to it. Um, because even then before pandemic, you might be like, oh, I'll be on the train or I have a commute or I have time where I'm actually going to be idle. Um, so it's, it's, it's been that, I think. So I think there's attention span. I think there's schedule. I think it's also just, I don't read in the same way. Um, I think now that I, I write, uh, I am talking about Toni Morrison and (laughs) looking at the structure of the book, you know, it's just a different way to read. And that's not to say I don't enjoy what I'm reading, but there is a more, I guess a more studiousness that comes comes uh, with it now. I think that it demands uh, more of my concentration than not flipping pages just to be like, what happens? Uh, there's still that that sort of writer brain that's always going concurrently, which is like, let me pick this apart a little bit. Uh, and I think that that's caused me, which I think is probably, maybe for the best, I don't know, to slow down a little bit, uh, but but yeah, it's definitely different than when I was reading it as a kid where I just inhaled everything. If there was someone in your life who had loved reading but was really struggling to, like, you know, said, I want to read, but I just can't quite, I don't know where to start and I don't know how to kind of get the habit going again. Which book would you give them? Yeah, I mean, the books that I always recommend to friends are just books that I find to be really propulsive. Um, so... I think uh, Silver Sparrow uh, by Tiara Jones, I find to, uh, to be one of the books that I've recommended that most of my friends have really loved. And it's just a propulsive book that has you turning pages. Um, and it's beautifully written, but it moves. Um, so I think those types of books. So that, um, Bel Canto by M. Patchett is another one that I recommend for that same oh, reason. So Silver Sparrow is one of my favorite books this summer. And I just read The Dutch House and I've never read M. Patchett before. And it's been yeah. sitting on my shelf. And I've been like, I've, I don't know why, but I had this idea that um, it would be quite grand and quite like literary and very sort of chewy description. And, and I was like, propulsive is the word, as you say, yeah. that it's really kind of, you know, that the... Um, God, what they call the Conroys and the wickedness of the the stepmother. I thought, yeah, I was reading it thinking, I'm really enjoying hating this woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's great. Um, I also really loved Commonwealth, and and I loved her first her debut novel, the title that's escaping me right now. But um, but yeah, but I think that those are two writers that are are both literary writers, but also uh, write books that are propulsive. Uh, so those are two um, that I generally recommend. Um, and one that just came out this summer um, here, I don't know when it's out in the UK, but is Luster by Raven Leigh Oh my is... God, I just read that. And I was like, yeah. I, it was so good. Yeah. It made me shake. I had to keep like, yeah. it down and be like, what is this? Yeah, it's a great debut and also like turning pages. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's like those types of books that like, I can't, if I'm having a lull, I'm not going to read something slow. Like I can't, I don't have like the brain space to like dedicate myself, but looking for books like that uh, during quarantine, I think have been, uh, have been really helpful of of just sort of jolting you. And those are all (laughs) books where the, you know, the literary skill and the writing is so, you know, dazzling Mm -hmm. and these authors are so talented, but also they are, you do, you are sort of breathlessly engaged and actually I think I read Silver Sparrow immediately after reading The Vanishing Half and I just kept thinking of that weird the sister theme that kept coming yeah. up yeah I love Silver Sparrow I think it's my favorite book by her uh, I think and... I liked it more than An American Marriage and I loved I An American too. Marriage but that felt kind yeah. of you know technically magnificent and breathtaking and great and I could see because here it was really 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 huge in the UK on the the women's prize fiction it's you know very sort of like literary but there was something I think I can't remember what the what the girls are called but that relationship and the the other sister the one who doesn't know that her father's a bigamist her kind of vulnerability and awkwardness and that relationship I loved how sad and sweet and uncomfortable it was and how I was rooting for them to have you know find some other commonality beyond their secret family yeah. connection yeah 
No, I thought I love that. I love that book. That book and Bel Canto are two that I recommend all the time, and no one has ever disliked them. I might have to start reading Bel Canto as soon as we start recording this podcast because I'm <laughs> yeah, really excited. What's it about? Um, it's about. It's actually the perfect quarantine read because it takes place entirely inside a house. <laughs> um, it's about this this dignitary who has a party, and there are all these guests that are invited. There's this opera singer who he's really excited to. Everyone's really excited to hear sing. Um, there are all of these different foreign dignitaries and important people at this house. And then as the woman is singing, the lights dim, and suddenly uh, these insurgents storm in the house and announce that they are taking everyone hostage. Um, and really the book is about like all of these different people from all over the world who speak all of these different languages. And there is one guy who's a translator who's in the house. And he has to be like the conduit through all these people to help them uh, connect with each other, to talk to each other. And the whole book just takes place during this hostage situation. And there's a lot that's scary about it. Obviously, it's a hostage situation. But more than that, it becomes this really beautiful and expansive novel about all of these people from all over the world who speak all these different languages, who can't directly talk to each other, but are like living out these full lives trapped in this house. So it's so wonderful it's just you're moving between the lives of all of these people there's like this really very mobile and roving kind of omniscient voice as you're going through the memories and the lives of all these people who are stuck together and you know people are falling in love and people are having you know learning from each other and, and all of this is happening under the the sort of situation that is this, this these people being trapped in this hostage situation so it's so great i can't i don't, can't conceive of how she accomplished that. Like, how do you make a book set in a house and it feels so huge? Um, but I think it's it's so brilliant. And again, the type of book that you're just flipping pages, you can't really put it. Sold. I will take 10 of those, please. <laughs> 10 copies of Bel Canto. I do think it's really interesting when anything that's set over a very short space of time or anything that's set in a very like restrictive environment and what can be done, um, in those spaces I just read for the first time we've always lived in the castle and that's so so claustrophobic can you really feel the walls closing in and the town closing in and yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it's like a bottle episode of tv you mm. know it's like let's put people in a room and not let them leave and what happens um and I think there's a lot of tension that you can generate from that but at the same time like the tension I understand it's the story how do you generate story from it that's what I find really confounding so people who are able to do that of not restricting the movement of characters and creating story from that restriction i find that to be really interesting and also like i said very appropriate for how we're all <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Brit soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. 
This time it's Monogamy by Sue Miller. Graham is deeply and passionately in love with Annie, but struggles with his baser impulses. We watch the couple falling for each other, and then we see them in middle age, vulnerable to pain, disappointment and decay. And then the unthinkable happens. I loved how Miller writes about appetites, and how difficult it is for us all to balance our cheerful lust and greed with our destructive streaks. This is a moving and poignant study about how love is hard, and perhaps the most difficult thing of all comes from believing that it should be easy. Also, Graham runs a bookshop and throws lots of parties. Monogamy by Sue Millet is published by Bloomsbury and out now. Now back to Brit. Is it The Vanishing Half has just been optioned to great and that's being made for TV? I don't know, you might be doing this, this might have come up, but are there any other books that you would love to adapt for the screen? If I were to give you an unlimited budget and I said you can cast whoever. <laughs> I, I would have to think about that, but excuse me. I mean, honestly, when I was rereading Song of Solomon, I kept thinking like, why has this not been adapted yet? Like this is in a lot of ways, the most straightforward Morrison novel, like as far as plot, you know, it's about a guy who's searching for gold. I'm like, there is so much that you could do with that. Um, that would be, and there's so many really fascinating side characters and it's about a quest, you know? So there's a way in which that seems very like, yeah, why isn't this a movie or something? Um, so I think that that would be really awesome to see. Um, and again, I, you know, it would never be as good as the book, but it would be that, that I think would, would make, uh, a, a cool adaptation. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know as far as anything else, um, that I've been thinking of. It's hard because... I don't know. It's hard for me always to imagine these things. Like even for the vanishing half, I I'm not adapting it myself. Um, so it's hard for me to kind of envision what it what it will look like. Um, but I'm glad that we're we're bringing on people who are professionals and will know how to how to make that happen. Because I can only see it as a book, you know. Because I guess in you know it's such a detailed world. And that kind of the way that detail is created on screen is so different, isn't it? And I wouldn't know what you know what to what to bring up and focus on, and what yeah. doesn't need to be told. Yeah, I mean, I think that and just the way that you move through time is so different in a book because you can have somebody thinking and they're thinking about what happened yesterday, and then the narrator tells you what happened a hundred years ago, and they could be projecting into the future, and you're like in one little paragraph, and you can move through time so fluidly. And I think that there is a different expectation of watching something that what you are experiencing is linear, even if it doesn't have to be, but that's kind of your assumption going into it. Um, but in a book, you can move so rapidly through time. You can move so rapidly through someone's interiority and that is different. Uh, there's so much that to, to me seems like it would have to be really different to adapt something. So, so yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how people go about doing that. Uh, particularly for books that are not, you know, like I said, as straightforward as this man who's searching for gold, like uh, books that are more complicated than that, make, translating it in a way that's visual and recreating that interiority in some way that you can't hear what the person is thinking. I don't know. I think it, it's got to be tough, but, but that's, and that's one reason why I'm glad that I will not be <laughs> doing it. How do you feel about watching that though? Because it must be really exciting, but also it's your brain and your story and having someone else interpret that. I don't know how that would feel. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I find it pretty exciting. I think uh, the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with the writers and, and weighing in and reading and giving notes and, and all of that. So not being ripped out of my hands exactly um, but there's something cool about thinking of what this story looks like refracted through other people's voices and their visions um, because you know writing a novel is so solitary and it's something that exists in your brain alone for several years um, so reaching a point where now there are going to be other people who are reacting to the material and who are seeing it in a different way and bringing up questions to things that you didn't really think about yeah. or things that you didn't even like asking me about these side side characters, these tiny, tiny details and wanting to like build that type of stuff out. I think it's exciting. And I also think that's why it's exciting. That's going to be on TV, which is a medium that is expansive. It's not about trimming the book down so that it fits into two hours. It's about like building the story out. And I think that that's something that's always appealing to me as a novelist, wanting more story. Definitely. 
I know we talked about like, you know, books that you'd recommend to people. Um, what about giving gifts? Yeah, I buy like I buy my mom often I buy her books. They my parents love coffee table books, so I buy them a lot of those um to uh to sort of display in their library. So I think I bought my mom uh it was a collection of like unpublished photographs from from black life in like the early 20th century. So I bought her a book like that. Um, I have a sister who's really into sneakers. So I found like this book on like the history of, it wasn't the Phil Knight book, but it was a book about like the history of sneakers that like takes you through all these sneakers. Um, so I bought her that. Um, there's this, this Instagram called Vintage Black Glamour um, and they compile these exactly what it sounds like, images of glamorous black people in the past. Um, but the, the, the woman who runs the Instagram wrote a book. Um, so I got that for my other sister um, who, who loves it. Um, I just, yeah, I try to find just what people enjoy and not what I am projecting onto them of what I think a great whatever is. But that, and then I have, you know, my friends who I'm often, yeah, giving, I'm, I'm, it's not a gift per se, but often if I have a really great galley, I'll pass it on. So like, I got the Yajasi galley uh, a while ago and I had I gave it to my friend to read the, the Transcendent Kingdom, the new book. This is the author of Homegoing. Uh, so she has her second book that just came out last week, I think. Can you think of any books that have taken you by surprise where you found yourself reading them being a little bit, not reluctant, but maybe ambivalent? and then ended up loving them or loving them much more than you expected to? I'm working on a new project, so I've been reading a lot of uh, celebrity tell-alls, um, and that's not a genre that I have ever read <laughs> or studied, um, but it's one that I've been studying, and there was one on Dusty Springfield that I just entirely loved as a book. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just, like, loving her music, but it was, it was the way that that book was written uh, which was with such, it was in a way that didn't feel exploitative, which is uh, not the way that I think of that genre. Um, and it was written with actual, like, kind of tenderness uh, towards this person. So that was, you know, that's, that's not a genre that I typically read, but I've read so many in the past two or three years since I've been working on this new book, which is about a famous person. Um, so I actually really loved that book. Uh, just as a book, not even for research. Um, I thought that it gave me such a, a weird feeling of intimacy towards this person, uh, which is what those books should do. But often they are just so exploitative and off-putting. You don't feel like you know the person any better, or you, you know. But this was like, oh, I wanted, I would want to be friends with this person. Was the feeling I got reading it. Oh, well, I a long time ago I read a Dusty Springfield biography, and I can't remember it very well, but I do remember it being you know, quite like surprisingly sort of thorough, especially around like the recording of Dusty in Memphis. And yeah, having that, that it was, it felt sensitive and thoughtful and thorough and not yeah. kind of, you know, grubby or salacious. Yeah. Well, I just love like, I mean, it's fine to get like information about, you know, this is what the person did. But again, like I'm not reading that to know like every kind of step by step of somebody's career. I want to know who that person was and who they were to the people close to them. And there's something inherently exploitative in that because if there's someone who's close to you and they're telling somebody for a book, how close are they to I mean, that's my feeling is like no one who really loves me would actually talk about me in a tell-all. So there's that feeling of like you are inherently distrust the sources of these books. Um, but at the same time, I think that they can cultivate the sense of intimacy and familiarity. Um, that's something that I think about when I listen to her music now. I think about these like, tiny little details it was like she she loved airplanes so much she liked to just sit in the airport and watch the planes take off and land and I'm like oh that's something now I know about this person that I think about when I listen to their music which is not something I would have ever known just listening to the songs but I think that question of intimacy is such an interesting one I really enjoyed um Busy Phillips memoir and I wasn't expecting to at all and I think a lot of people felt that way and I get for women especially I suppose living in that weird time when for better or worse usually for worse social media gives people a lot more agency and I do think that the the sort of unauthorized the books of you know like close friends have said and you don't get so many of those anyone you used to and they used to be so riveting and as you say there's definitely a bit of me that 
knows the problems with the format and with the, yeah. with the genre, but finds them compelling all the same. But now there is a different a sense of directness and people really yeah. wanted to control their own narrative at oh, yeah. every level. Celebrity is so different now. But then <laughs> <It's> also, <so laughs> how, how authentic is that voice really? Because as you say, you feel like they're telling you and it's intimate, but they are telling yeah. millions and millions of people yeah it's weird it's weird i mean i know mariah carey has a her memoir that's coming out soon which i'm certainly going to read also holy so, shit that's gonna be good yeah i can't wait for that one i was trying to decide like do i want to hear like the audiobook where she's reading it or do i want to read the book i think i probably want to read it but the audiobook would probably also be great um but but yeah i mean it's a form that i've been thinking about for this new project and and studying so it's taken me through several of them and it's been it's interesting to think about knowledge and how much can you know about a person who feels like you know so much about them um and that to me is like the kind of question at the heart of it is they profess this sense of almost omniscience there's a sense of we're going to tell you every you know the idea of tell all (laughs) like the idea that that's possible yeah uh we're going to tell you everything you need to know about who this person is and you know that it's impossible and you know that as a reader that you're skeptical about it because like i said who would actually go forward like who are these sources who's selling this information what's in it for them what's in it for the person writing it there's an inherent skepticism you bring to the genre and yet there is still that like pleasure of reading them of knowing that there's that there's probably something that's not true about it, of knowing that, you know, there's that kind of skepticism and the way in, in the way in which that's different than, or, or maybe not different than reading a novel, you know? I don't know if it's different um, because there's that same feeling of reading a novel of, you know, of knowing something is not real, but it's still feeling real to you. And I think that that's the same thing of, that happens when you're reading that tell-all, of knowing that this is, there's something about this that's not trustworthy, but... I still am willing to trust it because it's pleasurable. So, so yeah, so that's, that's just a, a lot of what I've been thinking about recently. But yeah, it's a strange form. It's a very, it's a strange form, but it's, it's, it's a fun form. <laughs> Is there anyone that you would love to, to ghost or co-write with or his story that you'd like to tell? <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to have done the Mariah Carey one. Um, that one, they were, I don't know if you saw that Vulture profile of her um, recently. It came out like a week or two ago. Yes, but it was, I have a subscription and the magazine's always yes. late and I'm saving it up. Yes, and they were like talking about her, just like her quarantine experience. I was just like, that is amazing to imagine. I mean, maybe not for the people who work for her who have been, <laughs> who have been serving her for since March, like in that quarantine house. But like the idea of something like that, I mean, I just think she's our last, I think she's like our last sort of of the old school divas. Mm. I don't think we've had anybody since uh who has had come from that sort of school of of celebrity like there's not the same sense of glamour anymore and there's also not the same sense of mystery and i think part of that is what you were saying about social media the fact that like i don't want to be able to log on and know what this celebrity is thinking yeah (laughs) there's that sense of like having a direct tap and there's like a reason why i think why someone like beyonce is like is exciting is because she's inscrutable. Mm. We, don't, we never know what she's thinking, you know? She posts Instagram photos, but there are never any captions. Like, she, she doesn't give interviews anymore. She doesn't, like, she occasionally will, like, peel back that curtain and give you a glimpse and then shuts it. And that's, like, to me, that's more of the, the tradition of, of sort of these, these older school divas that we just don't have anymore in the same way. Um, so I would have loved, I would have loved, loved, loved to go stride at Mariah Carey. And I also, I think, Mariah Carey is like legitimately so funny. And I think that that's something that like has, has started to, to come out. I think now in, in her mastery of social media, I think like her social media presence has made her infinitely more likable than she was before. Um, because she has like, a, there's a campiness, there's a self-awareness. She's always kind of making fun of herself for being really over the top um, in a way that I think is really charming online, but I think that she's legitimately really funny, and I think that it would be a blast just to, like, have been able to, like, sit down, (laughs) sit down with Mariah for hours, (laughs) and just hear her tell stories, and talk to you, and yeah, I I would have loved to do that, to do that book. I'm imagining it being kind of vortex, and you go in to write a book, and, you know, you come out, and like, we're all Mariah now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine, I, I mean, I can't, I, I mean, I can't, but it was, I was like living vicariously through that profile of 
somebody who she was like the first person to enter their quarantine house since March. So everybody was so excited just to have like a visitor. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. I always love that backstory of the profile. Did you read Swing Time by Zadie Smith? I did, yeah. I loved that in the way it talks about different kinds of a celebrity and you know looking through a screen and her obsession with Michael Jackson that she ends up doing that job for I guess she's meant to be Madonna when she yeah Madonna (laughs) yeah I mean I love I mean I I love that I've been reading um you know yeah a lot of books that are about that in some way like I said the um I've read Margot Jefferson's on Michael Jackson um which is also a great uh, a great quarantine read because it's short <laughs> and I just loved uh, I thought that book was so fascinating where it's just like a series of, sh- of essays that are all pivoting around Michael Jackson in some way and, and what he says about American culture and particularly through the lens of race mm. um, and it was so fascinating uh, to read a book I think about a celebrity who is so ubiquitous but also I mean, talk about inscrutable, like as somebody that no one can ever understand. Um, and as somebody who like having, you know, it's different than the Dusty Springfield book because I'm like, yeah, I remember these moments. Like I lived through some of these moments in Michael Jackson. Um, and he was an artist that was so uh, ubiquitous as I was growing up. Uh, and at the same time, like the way that we think about his legacy now is so different. And even between now and when she wrote the book, which came out, I think, in 2009. So she wrote, like, a new foreword after the HBO documentary and and kind of took herself to task a little bit about not being uh, sort of more... I mean, I don't even know how she actually phrases it, but she, there's a there's an essay in the book that's about the trial. And it's really more about the circus of the trial itself than it is about the allegations against him. And she kind of takes herself for task uh, to task about that, which I thought was really interesting and to see writers kind of writing back to the things that they have written, <laughs> I think is always interesting. Um, so it's a really fascinating book about just sort of celebrity culture and and all through the lens of Michael Jackson. But, uh, but I love the idea of having like one figure and being able to talk about all of these different things through this one person. And that Michael Jackson in particular being someone who had millions of ardent ardent fans but also there was no one in the planet who hadn't heard of Michael Jackson your great-grandparents if they're still whether they know who he is and I think that's such an interesting demonstration of just the power and currency that celebrity has that that trial happened and that years and years and years later people were still that they they didn't want to consider what was going on because right. because of who he was and what he meant and what they'd made him mean. Were right. you a fan or are you a fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely was. Uh, I, yeah, I, grew, I mean, my parents were like Jackson 5, you know? They were like, my mom talked about the first time she saw the Jackson 5 on television, her friend calling her and being like, you have to watch, like that type of feeling of celebrity. Uh, but I think an- another strange thing, I think, of reading that book is just like, even just looking at what celebrity looked like in the nineties versus what celebrity looks like now, which is so different. (laughs) Like that type of, that type of mania, it's hard to imagine another, like I think about, I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't know who the most popular, I mean, I guess Beyonce is maybe the the closest thing we have to a Michael Jackson now, but like the mania that Michael Jackson inspired is it's hard to think of another parallel living now. So, you know, I think, and I think the other thing about that book is that it, it sort of grapples that question of what do we do when bad people make good art? And she like kind of dives into that, that question of, of what do you do with that art afterwards? Um, and I think there's no easy answers to it. Uh, I find it hard to listen to Michael Jackson now, mm. but there's no real easy answer to it because you think about, I mean, my God, find any like, <laughs> any entertainer yeah. at any point in time. You know, anybody, like you start thinking about, once you start unraveling and thinking about, you know, James Brown and all of these people who are geniuses and who are creative um, geniuses and icons and legends and who have made such great art that means so much to so many people. And then you start peeling back the curtain on their personal lives. Um, you know, that, that becomes a really uncomfortable question. <laughs> and I think what it maybe tells us about humanity that we do not want to know and we do not want to consider is it's very easy and convenient and comfortable, like, oh, that guy was evil and we're not going to listen to the music anymore. Not right. so many people 
do these terrible things when they have money and power. What would mm-hmm. we do if we had that money and power? This doesn't make yeah. me feel good about people. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a really uncomfortable question. <laughs> but I love that the book, it doesn't shy away from it. it. It kind of aims you directly at it. I'm currently reading, I don't know if you've come across this book. Um, I'm reading it for the second time because it's so much fun and it's so easy. Um, it's called I Want My MTV. And it's an oral history about oh. MTV. And I've just... I have not. I would love to read that. They're just working out what to do about Michael Jackson and right. the the racism and the whiteness right. of MTV. And they're like, oh, no, we're a rock channel. And they're clearly like, no, that yeah. doesn't hold up. And it's so... It's really interesting because it's... An, what's also, I think you'd love because it's an oral history. It's tiny yes. interviews and people contradicting each other all the time. Love so it. people denying yes. what they said and misremembering. Yes. And, but yeah, that is really... I think I that, that might be good celebrity um, intel yeah. in there. No, I would love to read that. I love that type of thing. Did you read Daisy Jones and the Six? I did, yes. I really loved that book. And I think... A, what you said about the Anne Enright book and that was this person real and I had that I knew it was an imaginary band but it felt so plausible and that band and what happened felt so plausible and I also and I love that an oral history as a fictional device yeah I do too and I love the contradictions in that book as you were saying there were some moments where it would just be like one after the other people arguing um and uh and I've encountered those types of things also in some some tell-alls where they just, I love when they just present the dialogue of just people being like, that's not going to happen. It was a Sunday. No, it was a Tuesday or whatever. Um, and I think like the flip side of that genre is um, a book like Blonde um, by Joyce Carol Oates, which was one that I finished last year, which is a fictionalized biography of Marilyn Monroe. And it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about because it takes a real person, but fictionalizes sort of their life. Um, and that was a book, it took me a long time to get through it. It's a long book. Um, and But it was a book that I found so audacious and fascinating. And I've never particularly found Marilyn Monroe remotely interesting as a celebrity. I've had no interest in ever reading anything about her. Um, and just like indifferent. I, I didn't dislike her, I just was indifferent. Um, but that book uh, is so fascinating. <laughs> Like the idea of taking this person who, again, is is an ubiquitous, ubiquitous cultural figure in the way that someone like Michael Jackson is. Um, even if you've never seen a Marilyn Monroe movie, you like know, you know, sort of what she rep- what she came to represent in American culture. Uh, but it's a book that completely defamiliarizes all of that, everything that you think that you know about her as a figure, um, and just the the intimacy with which Joyce Carol Oates burrows inside of her, of the psyche of a real person. There is, it gives you that tell-all, like, kind of icky feeling a little bit of, but also it's, it's so, I don't know, it's so fascinating that, that she, like, recreates, like, there are moments where she's, like, recreating, or you think she's recreating poetry from Marilyn Monroe's diary or something like that. I remember, like, Googling it, and it was, like, no, these weren't poems that Marilyn Monroe wrote. Joyce Carol wrote these poems. So I was like, wait, what? Is this real? But, and there are all these, you know, there are figures that are all the, the figures that were in her life that are represented in the book. Um, and again, like, Joyce Carol is writing from the perspective of JFK or, you know, these people um, who are in the book. So it's, it's such an audacious project. Um, but I loved, I don't know, it's the kind of reverse of the tell-all. It takes somebody who's real and intentionally fictionalizes aspects of their life in order to defamiliarize them in this way that I found really uh, yeah fascinating you're so right audacious is the word I just read uh, Rodham and I loved it and that that you're that people are allowed to do it and because that's all we want from a tell isn't it that experience what we want to know how we want to feel that's also like I've been thinking about that in a different way because that's also like presented sort of as a memoir I guess uh which is maybe more audacious because it's somebody writing, not only fictionalizing, fictionalizing the person, but writing as them more directly than the way that Blonde is, I, I think, mostly third person, although it moves a little bit. But there's like a little bit of a move in Blonde. There's that it's kind of more like a biography than an autobiography. And I suppose what's yeah. so weird and what I loved so much about Rodham is the second half is all invented. The second half is that premise of what yeah. if. But a good half of it is 
kind of real, Actual, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who's really obsessed with Hillary Clinton. So we're all supposed to, we were supposed to read this book like as a group. Um, and we're waiting for him to finish it because I really want to know, he's read several Hillary Clinton biographies. So I want to know, he's kind of our resident expert. So I'm just like, I want to know what he thinks about this book. Um, because we were watching the Hulu documentary and he was like, he like recognized her friends who were being interviewed in that documentary because they had popped up in these other things that he had read about her. <laughs> so that's his level of knowledge. So I'm really curious to see, I think that he feels, he's hesitant to read it. I think because he, I don't know, maybe that, that like violation feels worse to him because he's like, like, I'm like, I'm, I like her. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not like a you know, gigantic fan. Like, I haven't read multiple books by her. I voted for her. I support her. But I, I, I don't, like, love her in the way that he loves her. And I think that that's some reason why he's, like, he was saying something the other day about, like, it's, like, it's too intimate. Like, there was something about that violation of the intimacy that is hard for him as a fan to, to read. So, but I want him to, because I just want to know what his feeling is about, particularly once he gets to the part where it really departs from her life, yeah. what he feels about that. Because... There were things I had, I had, there were things that I had questions about of the timeline that she constructs because I just don't think that you get Barack Obama without George Bush first. I just think, I felt like he was, Obama was, there was a reaction to the Bush presidency in the way that Trump is a reaction to Obama, right? Um, so that I found, I found dubious that we would have ended up in a timeline where Barack Obama was still president without the disaster of a Bush presidency first. Um, but I am really curious to hear what my friend will think about this as our as our Hillary expert. I kind of I want to know too now. I subscribe to that theory, and also it gives me so much hope because if what we what is going on now, say what we I'm not I'm not there, but I'm from across the way. What is going on now is so awful. Then what's going to happen in reaction to it? It's got to be wonderful. <laughs> I hope, but we also had two terms of a Bush presidency, you know, so. Uh, well, I, I will we'll try not to put that energy into the air, but, uh, but yeah, I hope, I hope that that pendulum will swing back the other way, which is often what happens in American politics is that kind of reaction, the reaction swinging back in that way. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was really interesting. Thinking about with certain public figures and celebrities and the way that we feel like they belong to us and only us, even though there are millions and billions of other people. Are there any books that you feel that way about that your response was so passionate and so personal you can't quite get your head around the idea that other people love and have read it too? <laughs> the Great Believers, I think, was probably the last book I read that really, really destroyed me <laughs> emotionally. Um, I cried reading Feast Your Eyes, but like Great Believers, I think, was one of the first books I closed the book and like sobbed. <laughs> like... And it's a book that you know, again, you know, you're reading a book about the AIDS crisis. You know that, you know, there is going to be death. There's going to be this loss of life. It's baked into the premise of the book that you know that you're reading. Uh, but that book ends so perfectly. The last page is so perfect. And when I got there, it was just like a release of the sort of groundswell of emotions I've been building up throughout the book. Uh, so I think that was like a book that I had a really just huge emotional response to um and i haven't recommended that book to anybody else um i told one friend to well he was on a vacation and i was just like well this is the last great book i read but i don't want you to be like crying on the beach reading this book um so it's a hard book to recommend to people but it's a book that i really love huge thanks to brit if you haven't read The Vanishing Half and The Mothers Yet, you have the biggest treat in store. I'm quite jealous that it's all ahead of you. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining us. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Booked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make me very, very happy if you could leave us a five star review and any thoughts you have. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. I leave you with this from Zora Neale Hurston. Perhaps it is just as well to be rash and foolish for a while. If writers were too wise, perhaps no books would get written at all. It might be better to ask yourself why afterward rather than before. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market